Welcome to travel. Like an idiot. Oh, there we go. Google took its sweet time, but we are now live. We are live on the internet where only Clifford Ornberger can see us. Uh, welcome, everybody, <laughs> to Travel Like an Idiot, Episode 4. It has been a very long time since we did an episode. Uh, my sincerest apologies. Uh, Cliff's sincerest apologies, I can only assume. Yeah. I'm going to put all sorts of words in his mouth. Um, so, yeah, life got in the way, but that's okay. People are still out in the world traveling and being idiots. Um, just to let you know, uh, we have a little pseudo-sponsor on the show today. Um, it's not a real sponsorship because I think for that to be the case, like money would have to exchange hands, and there's no chance of that happening anytime soon. Uh, but the other day, I was sitting on the couch watching the first game of the Copa America, which I was very excited for. Big soccer fan. Okay, thank you uh, for saying soccer. <laughs> just because yeah. I didn't know what sport. No, I had to fill you in. A lot of people have been very excited for this, but it has started as kind of an unmitigated disaster for the United States where it's oh. being hosted. They've been getting, like, national anthems wrong of countries. <laughs> oh, like, no. Yeah, uh, Uruguay was playing against Mexico, and instead of the Uruguayan national anthem, they played the Chilean national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> And then in the very next game, when Chile was playing against Argentina, uh, the Chilean national anthem uh, had the audio of Pitbull singing over the national anthem on the TV broadcast. Oh, that's so bad. It was amazing. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I felt bad for all the Chilean people, obviously. Uh, Anyway, so I was watching the game, um, and on Twitter... I follow some soccer accounts, and they had these advertisements like, you just retweet this, and we'll we'll pick somebody who wins a scarf from this company called Die Hard Scarves. Um, I guess they, they make these, like, hand-knit soccer scarves in the United States. So I yeah. retweeted it casually, thinking nothing of it, you know, as, as one is wont to do. And then the next morning I woke up, and I, I got a notification on my Twitter, which very rarely happens, and they told <laughs> me that I had won a scarf. And originally they told me that I'd won a United States scarf because that was one of the two teams that was playing. So I was all super (laughs) excited. Um, And then I guess they deleted that tweet and changed it that I had, in fact, won a scarf from Colombia, which is all well and good. Drama. The fact that my wife is from Argentina and and Colombia soccer don't get along very well. So if anybody's in the market for a Columbia scarf, (laughs) let us know. Yeah, but I thought it was a really cool um, offer that they did, and the fact that they picked me was super fun. So I told them that I would shout them out on the podcast. You can go to diehardscarves.com, and they have really amazing stuff. Well, I haven't actually gotten it yet, but from the pictures, it looks good. (laughs) (laughs) That's so... That's too bad you're not getting the American one. I know, I was so excited I was going to have one that I could use, but, you know, such is life. I almost took a screenshot of the original tweet and, and brought it to their attention, but I figured I was getting something for free, so I shouldn't really complain about it too much. Yeah, it's a free scarf. And exactly. the Colombians would love you. That's right, if I ever go to Colombia, I'll just, uh, I probably won't have occasion to use a scarf in Colombia. It's probably very warm, but... You never know. You should plan a whole, you know, two or three thousand dollar trip around a free scarf. We like, can do that. 
We can do that on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So we do have a very special guest on this episode. Yeah, and we I'm going to let you, Cliff, introduce our very special guest. Um, well, for, well, since we did not do any preparation for this, uh, I should ask, do you want to have a pseudonym? And if so, do you, you, you should say that now. Um, no, just Jesse will be fun. Okay, then yeah. this is my friend Jesse. Um, he uh, currently lives in the same house as me, and we've shared a bunch of stories, and I've heard a bunch of stories from him. So I wanted to invite him on since I knew he'd have... He's been to interesting places that I don't think I... I don't think I've ever met anyone that's been to, like, Kyrgyzstan before, so that's one place. And I, I don't know how much I'm going to say about it right now, but, yeah. You uh, you worked in Tanzania. You've done the Peace Corps in Kyrgyzstan. Right. And those are the two big things I know about you, but I don't know where else you've traveled, so we could just start with that. Like, yeah, Those are like, the two places I've worked at. Um, then I've traveled, like, Europe, Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, Parts of Africa, pretty extensively. Um, but my, my my two main like long-term um, travel areas has been Central Asia and Tanzania. Cool, cool. And uh, so like just right off the like, you were in you were in Kyrgyzstan for the Peace Corps, right? Right. And what what were you doing? Just to, like give like some set kind of some surviving. Kind of <laughs> um, I was so I joined Peace Corps. About a year after college, so this was like 2011, I think. Um, and I was, well, at the time, my program was called uh, Sustainable Economic Community Development. Um, but I think they've just shortened it to Community <laughs> Economic Development now. That um, so basically, um, it sounds important. It took me like 27 months to figure out what exactly we did. So right <laughs> on the tail end, you were just starting to get it when they said Yeah, like that. my last month, I was like, oh, this is what we do. No, <laughs> it's, um, so like, okay, so like the other, so the programs in Kyrgyzstan, there was the, um, the English teaching program, which every country has. Um, then we had this health program that worked at hospitals and clinics and they provided um, health trainings and were created like health education curriculums. And then there was my program which was sustainable economic community development which was everything else mashed together. So it was like could be youth development, could be business planning, could be agriculture. Um, and so within that, I was kind of focused in first agriculture, and I was put into a organization that did farming training. Um, but then I switched to a different organization because that organization, like, ended up being a front for basically this old dude who was stealing a bunch of USAID money. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then I was put into an <laughs> orphanage and doing basically organization planning for this orphanage for the rest of my um, service. Wow. So did you have, um, so was your degree in this kind of thing going into the Peace Corps? No, and that's kind of like the beauty of Peace Corps is, um, so my degree was political science and history, and 
Okay, um, so that's not the furthest away kind of thing. Not the furthest away, but definitely major. not any... Like, I didn't know anything about how to write grants or how to, like, create a strategic plan. Um, and so, and Peace Corps doesn't necessarily care too much about that. Um, it's more of, like, are you interested in volunteerism overseas? If yes, what's your stress level like? And... Are you okay of maybe going insane after like a year? And if you're okay with that, then they just put you in where they want to put you in. Um, but you have like two months of training, which is mostly language training, and then once a week you have what you call technical skill training, which is where you kind of learn about your program and how do you, how do you create grants and stuff like that. Um, but most of like my how I worked, like most of the skill sets that I had to use was almost came from my own self-study um, and it just trial and error. That's what I've heard from like every Peace Corps person. Yeah. Almost. That's just trial and error. So how, how far in advance did you find out that you were going to Kyrgyzstan? Um, I found out maybe, well, <laughs> there's a funny story behind Kyrgyzstan. So when I was in college, um, I took a class on Central Asian politics and society, and after that class, I came out with the impression of I would never go to Central Asia and fuck Kyrgyzstan. They're a messed up country. And then after that, um, I applied for Peace Corps, and lo and behold, the country I got assigned to was Kyrgyzstan. So I found, I think I found out. Um, about three months um, in that I was going. It was like um, a nine-month application process. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, it's a big one. So, well, so there's the online application, and then, which is pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and then you have, like, a regional interview mm -hmm. uh, with a Peace Corps with the Peace Corps regional office, so the regional, so I'm from originally Florida, and the regional office for the South is Atlanta. So the Atlanta office called me, asked me, it gave me an interview about my interests and my experience and stuff like that, um, and then that person liked me, so he recommended me to the DC office, and then the DC office gave me a medical application. Which just takes the longest amounts of time yeah, it's really for the thorough. process. It's incredibly thorough. You have to do a lot of medical exams, take a lot of vaccines and stuff like that, and that wow. takes like eight, seven to eight months for someone who's like has no medical issues. Now, if you have medical issues, it could take a year or more. I've there is like a lady in my group. She was like. 70 years old, and it took her three years to get through the medical process. Wow, that's um, expensive. So, but <laughs> once you get yeah. through the medical process, then you have a second interview with the DC case managers, and they ask you more detailed questions, kind of like weird personal questions, like your sex life and like your personal relationships and stuff like that. It made no real sense at the time. It makes more sense like once you're in the country and then they're like, oh yeah, so if like I'm married but my wife doesn't want to go to Peace Corps, then my wife has to stay stateside and how do I deal with long-term relationships, stuff like that. 
um, um, which all adds to like the mental health of a volunteer. But they ask you a bunch of like mental health questions and how you deal with certain situations. And then if you pass that, they'll invite you to a country and then that's your opportunity to either accept it or decline it. Um, some people decline the first placement because they want to get another country. They don't want to look too desperate. They want to say, right. I really don't want the Peace Corps to want me. Right, but the downside of that is also, that you might have country to Country favoritism probably too. Right, right. I, was, I mean, when I was applying, I had never been to any other countries before, so I was like, I'll go to Kyrgyzstan. Um, That's it's and, so interesting that you had had a prior experience with Kyrgyzstan, even just taking that yeah. class, <laughs> like well, that you had thought, "Fuck that place, I'm never gonna go." Well, it's <laughs> amazing. So, like, the reason why I was like that was because when I was taking that class, Kyrgyzstan was in a civil war, and it was like a horribly bloody civil war. Okay. That ended literally a month after I arrived into that country. After. So during that. During the application process, they were still at war. So it was more of like, do I want to spend 27 months in a country where I might get shot or blown up? Um, I have no idea why it was still open, but I ended up deciding to go anyways because uh, Peace Corps reassured me that we would be safe and the war was ending and stuff like that. Um, so, did family and friends know about this kind of uh, situation before? Because uh, a lot of people don't read up on the Central Asian news. Um, uh, so did no, you, did you I, feel did, I didn't, I didn't tell my parents about the political situation of Kyrgyzstan until after I left Peace Corps. They really cared. <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it wasn't... Living there, yeah, there's still a lot of violence. Um, most of the shooting, well, most of the killing had stopped by the time I got there. Um, but there's still a bunch of insurgents. Like, we weren't allowed to travel to the southern provinces. And there were definitely like rebels training in the farmlands outside my village. But by and large, um, other than like a couple like scary moments, they kind of like left the Americans alone. Um, though the Peace Corps group before me definitely saw some crazy fighting. Like some of the horror stories they were telling me was like they're in like their office and suddenly they're like they, like their office getting like rockets launched at them and um, one guy had to call like the US Embassy and like the US Marines had to helicopter him out of that's his nuts. province and stuff like that. So that's um, really serious. So the Peace Corps w was kind of, they they weren't really uh, nervous about sending people to what was essentially an active war zone. Right, um, which was, it was a, more of a political decision um, because any, so if you look at Kazakhstan, for example, which is north of Kyrgyzstan, mm -hmm. um, there was one bombing in southern Kazakhstan where they had no Peace Corps volunteers at. And they after that, they closed the entire program. Um, and then, like, in Nigeria, um, there was um, a volunteer that got assaulted, and they also closed down the entire program. Um, but the reason why they kept... Well, my theory of the reason why they kept the Kyrgyz program opening, even though there was still violence 
and even though there was a civil war, was because in Kyrgyzstan we have it's called the American Transit Center, which is the military base where the U.S. Uh, it's a launch ground. It's a place where the U.S. sends soldiers to Afghanistan. It's like the resting area. Okay. Um, and Kyrgyzstan was threatening to close down that base, and the rest of Central Asia kicked the U.S. kicked the American troops out, and Kyrgyzstan's the only. Um, Central Asian country that still has an American base, so they let. But Peace Corps was was very popular to the Kyrgyz, so they kept the program open um, mm. as like an argument for having a base. I guess at the same time, the the U.S. Army was able to respond quickly to say like to help someone. So right. Um, I mean. Yeah, so yeah, we really definitely had we had probably the highest security regulations we had to follow, and we definitely had a large military presence. The army itself doesn't really respond to Peace Corps. It's more of like the the embassy Marines. Mm -hmm. um, so, like the transit center won't won't send troops to evacuate volunteers, but the embassy like but the embassy security definitely would. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, like, Kyrgyzstan was your first time abroad? No, uh, my first time in abroad was... It was definitely my first time living, living. long-term in okay. a foreign country, but my first time abroad was in high school, where I spent a couple summers um, basically traveling around Western Europe um, through, like, this... Uh, College program that my high school was partnered with. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, so I was gonna. Say, so it wasn't your first time abroad, but it was your first time living abroad. And right. Our show is called Travel Like an Idiot, so it doesn't leave you a lot of wiggle room. It doesn't sound like a country with a lot of wiggle room for, like, mistakes in a way. Oh, you can still be an idiot in Kyrgyzstan. Oh, um, okay, good. It's just, yeah. I mean, you just got to be a careful, smart idiot. <laughs> Which is what we'd like our viewers to be, or not viewers, <laughs> listeners. Viewers. <laughs> the ones I'm imagining. Um, right. But yeah, so I'm trying to think. So like, I am wondering, um, in the so just doing a quick Google search, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know when the <laughs> Kyrgyzstan Civil War ended. Uh, so doing a quick Google search, I see that it ended in 2010. Is that correct? Well, um, that's when it officially ended. So um, in that intervening time, has there been any real like tourist industry that's grown uh, in that country? I mean, I don't know how closely you follow it, be, being away from it, but does anybody really go go there just for the sake of traveling? The Russians do. Um, so Russians, not many Westerners. Go except for Germans, um, but I would oh, say Russia. You can find them everywhere. Yeah, but Germany has a special um, history with Kyrgyzstan because after World War II, when the Soviet Union took over um, Eastern Germany, they relocated thousands of Germans to be farmers in Kyrgyzstan. So many. 
uh, villages and towns in Kyrgyzstan have German architecture. So there's a lot of Germans that can visit Kyrgyzstan to visit like their own their old family's house or stuff like that. Because um, after uh, once Eastern after the reunification of Germany, many of the Germans in Kyrgyzstan went back to Germany. Um, but they, but there's still a lot of German tourists to see kind of like their history that area. But then you got the Russians. Um, that come down for hiking as well as to swim at Izakul Beach, um, which is like the largest um, inland lake in that area. Um, so you got a lot of Russian tourists that go there for basically getting a, like getting a tan and swimming in a semi-radioactive lake. Oh well, just semi. Um, yeah, well. Yeah, well, part like half the lake is heavily radiated because there's a Canadian gold mining company um, that has rights to mine. Oh no, not gold mining. That's in Talas. Um, and Isacol is a Canadian uranium mining company um, that mines uranium near the lake and throws the radioactive waste into the lake. Um, so, like, my host mother went on vacation to Isacol and she swam in the lake and came back with these horrible rashes all over her body. Um, I Google imaged it. It, uh, it looks beautiful. <laughs> then you said that. <laughs> it's a beautiful lake for sure. I would not swim in it though, or eat any of the fish in it. Um, the first picture is of a brand new water slide going into the lake. Oh, there's <laughs> a water slide. That's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty sick. It's a dueling water slide. You can like race your friend down. What say. they could do is they could coat the water slide with like ointment, so that way when you hit the water, <laughs> you avoid all those sores. Right. You yeah. Know, just nipping in the bud there. So, is there like a story that you have that like encapsulates your time in Kyrgyzstan and like a time that you felt like an idiot? Um. Oh, there's many. Um. So, the Kyrgyz have this uh, word called jaila, which is roughly translated into summer fields. And what you know about the Kyrgyz is that they're originally very nomadic, and uh, the Russians kind of forced them to settle and stuff like that, but they still practice this nomadic culture. And like, like there's more Kyrgyz that ride on horses than they do cars. Um, but every summer, all the families are expected to just quit whatever they're doing, whether they work for government or they teach. They quit their main occupation, I would say, and then go to the Jilo. So they get on horseback and herd all their livestock into the summer fields. And um, I had never, they never prepared me for this in Peace Corps <laughs> training. And so I had no idea what they, what like, what like people were doing. My host family was like, we're going to the Jilo, we're going to the Jilo, you're coming too. I'm like, what's the Jilo? <laughs> At the time, like I, I was working in an orphanage, and I was like in the middle of like work, and... My director just disappeared because she went off to the Jilo. Um, <laughs> like all the workers disappeared because they went off to the Jilo. So you had no warning about this at no, all. They, no, they don't warn you about anything. They assume you know it. They don't tell you anything until like maybe, maybe the night before. Um, They're like, "Hey, you guys do this in Florida, right? You guys yeah. all get, in, get so, on your horses and so yeah. So like I wake, I, I I wake up." And I walk out to get breakfast, and my host father is just like, what are you doing, Jesse? 
And I'm like, what? It's like, you're not, you're in like your work, you're like in a shirt and tie. We're going to the gylo. I'm like, I have work today. It's like, no, work's canceled. You see that horse? He points out the window, and there's like a couple of horses out there, and he's like, you see that horse? That's your horse. I hadn't even ridden a horse in like forever. Like last time I rid a horse was probably like elementary school or this middle school. Incredible. I gotta and say so he just points at his horse like, that's your horse. You protect this horse with your life. <laughs> it's basically the gun speech from Apocalypse Now. Exactly. And again, <laughs> I had no jacket. idea, Which one was I had I no yeah. idea what this was. I had no idea where we were going, but I was told to change, pack a suitcase of some clothes, and get on that horse and just follow them. <laughs> so I pack a suitcase. They throw it behind like my, my brother-in-law's. Uh, my my host brother-in-law's horse, and I'm trying to steer this horse. Again, I haven't ridden a horse in years. I'm trying to steer it and move this horse <coughs> to follow the rest of this long convoy. So it was like five people, me semi riding a horse. My little sister had to kind of like steer the horse, like hold my hand on how to ride this horse. And then we're surrounded with at least 800 sheep. And we're going on to, like, the highway Good of God. our province. And there's people, there's definitely cars, like, driving, like, 90 miles an hour around us. And I'm just like, I'm going to freaking die because we are literally in the middle of a highway herding sheep to God knows where. And it was, like, a three-hour horseback ride, and then we ended up in the middle of nowhere. It, it ended up being a great trip. The fields are beautiful. Um, I got to live in a yurt for a couple months. But there was like a couple of months wait. where I just completely disappeared. Peace Corps had no idea where the hell I was. So this was months. Wait, wait, wait. I, yeah. Months. Yeah. This was the <laughs> summer season. So just everyone goes off into a field for the summer. It sounds really nice. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that in Kyrgyzstan, they have like at least six months worth of winter. So by the time winter's over, all their livestock are half-starved and like semi-dead. So they spend like two or three months getting these livestock to the grasslands to gorge, to have the animals basically gorge themselves um, and get really fat for the next winter. Mm. Um, so they're out there for a while, and yeah, it was like a giant long camping trip that was completely out of the blue, and I basically learned how to rough it in Kyrgyzstan. And by, so you were just with your family? Yeah, so I left my family in this giant year, but then there's like other families in the fields also. Um, okay, like so each, but each, so they're divided by tribes. So each tribe had like what they would consider their land, even though there's like no concept of like borders or anything. They just knew where their land ended. Yeah. Um, Eyeball it. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely different families and stuff, and um, but I didn't really interact with them a whole lot because they're just doing their own thing. And you're also constantly on the move. Like this is not like you're just in one spot. Oh, that's you cool. stay in one spot. You're like you're in this spot for like a week, then all the grass is eaten up, then you pack up and move on to the next spot. So you got good at riding a horse, or no, not at all. Oh. <laughs> the entire time I was just like. My, like, inner thighs were, like, rubbed raw, and I was, like, oh, constantly no. sore, and it was brutal. It was fun, though. It was just the most random 
summer trip. So were you able had. to tell your job that you were going and doing this, or did you not even get a minute to, to tell them? Well, the beauty of Kyrgyzstan is no one really... Everyone, everyone knows what's going on. It's just I don't know what's going on. So when I had disappeared, my director assumes already assumed I was going to the Gylos, like weeks before I actually knew what it was. <laughs> um, and again, she disappeared also because she, she, her family was going to the Gylos as well. Um, and, but for the longest time, I was worried because who's going to take over, who's going to watch the kids? Like, who's going to take care of the kids? And like, the no, the kids stayed in the orphanage, but they, <laughs> like the, the old, like the, the grandmothers of the village ended up taking care of the kids. But the entire time I was trapped and isolated out in the gylos, I was just like, oh my god, these kids are going to starve to death. That's, but, so, uh, that's such an amazing like dichotomy, because I feel like in the United States, if you don't show up for something, or if somebody's even so much as like five minutes late for something, you just assume, oh, this person's dead, or yeah. they quit, you know? And that's just, yeah. people can get up and go for three months, and that is perfectly normal. Yeah, and it's just it's completely a different experience, and like their concept of time is completely different. Yeah, it's something I've really learned in the last two years. Like in Kyrgyzstan, so in the states, um, if someone has a meeting at like eight thirty in the morning, that meeting is going to start at eight thirty in the morning. In Kyrgyzstan, when you tell them you're going to have a meeting at 8.30 in the morning, they'll say, okay, we'll have a meeting at 8.30 in the morning, but then show up at, like, 11. Yeah. And and it's on time to them. Like, they, they're far more flexible of showing up late. In fact, it's polite to show up late. Yeah, um, and, and everyone else that's at her at 8.30 knows that it's, it means, like, 11. The only person right. in the room that doesn't know is you, right? Right. So, that's yeah. So like, point where so you in, feel like an idiot. So in trainings, yeah. So for like, yeah, for like, so my first year, the first year of Peace Corps, you're not really doing anything but surviving and learning how things work. So like, my first year, I was like, I would give out training meetings. No one would show up to my meetings until like hours later, and I would just be like in a room looking stupid by myself. Um, but then like the second year, I was like. If I wanted, so say I wanted a training to happen at like 10 in the morning, I wouldn't say show up at 10 in the morning. I would say show up at 8 in the morning, <laughs> and then they'll be on time at 10 in the morning. So on the, the trip to the Gilo, um, right. what, uh, like, did you realize... When did you realize that you were going to be gone for months? Was it the first day or like a week <laughs> later? It was... Okay, so... Because okay, that's like so a weird one thought, of, just to be one gone. Of the, the fun nuances, one of the fun nuances in the Kyrgyz language is that they have this word called Azur. Azur means now or later. Oh, <laughs> So when I would talk, ask my so like the first couple of days, um, now the entire so the entire time, so when I first started out living with them, Peace Corps told them I would know the language. So 
So they, they immediately assumed I was fluent in language, but really I learned like the basic sentence structures and didn't get good at the language until my second year. So when I first came to their fam to the family, they thought I was stupid or something because I didn't really speak Kyrgyz. So they always they always they always spoke in like the simplest terms. So when I asked them at Ajila my first week, like when are we going back to the village, they would say Azur, which for me meant literally nothing because Azur means we could go back to the village now or we could go back to the village later, and th they're concept of later is either tomorrow or like a year from now. It's the perfect like non-committal response. Right. <laughs> I want to start using that. Right, and that, it's even better because they also have a word called munkun, which means maybe, which is their no. But at the, my first time there, I literally had no idea that when they wanted to say no, they didn't say jok, which is no. They said munkun, which is maybe. So I was like, are we leaving tomorrow back to the village? And they would say, Moon Kun, maybe. So the entire time, I had no idea like what was going on. <laughs> and it's like it was being like, lost at sea in a way. Right. Right. So it was like the, the first week where I realized I'm probably not going to come back to the village for a while. You were a, a Dothraki now. Yeah. <laughs> you had no choice. I had no choice. That's incredible. See, that's like a, that, there's cultural parallels to that. It's like if you ask a girl to go out with you and she says maybe, you know that that's not a maybe. That is <laughs> yeah. a firm no. Right. That's something I've had to teach about American communication to friends. Like maybe in America also generally means, no, I'm not that interested. It's not a firm no, but it's a, I don't really want to say no. You're too nice to say no, pretty much. Yeah. Right. Our roommate gets annoyed with it. Yeah, like in Kyrgyz, like you never say no. You always say munkun. Especially, and they have like a age hierarchy. So I was there's there's a term for me like young unmarried boy is called a jagit. And as a Jagit, I would never say no to a grandmother in her, like, 60s. That's, like, the biggest sin ever. Because um, the older you are, the more power and influence you have on the tribe and of the village. Um, and the younger you are, the less rights you have. And you see it's in everything. Even, like, public transportation. If you were a Jagit, a young, unmarried man you would never sit in front of the bus. You'd always have to sit in the very back or stand in the aisles. Um, unless, of course, you're holding a baby. So mm -hmm. every time I was on public transportation, I would find a mother with a child, and I would offer to carry that baby. And they would let me carry the baby because it was funny for American see American holding a baby. But, and then no one would ask me for their seats. So that's the only exception of that hierarchy rule. And, that, and you see that also in, like, the Jailos as well. Like, if an older person tells you you got to herd re those 100 sheep in a couple hours, you can't say no, you got to do it. Um, wow. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you're an old grandfather, all you do, the only thing that's expected of you is just sit around and drink fermented horse milk. 
<laughs> That's the and dream. How was that? Did you get to try the fermented horse milk? Oh like yeah, it was great. Um, it's very, very bitter and salty, um, but it has the same alcohol c- concentration as like a really strong wine. So it's definitely will get you drunk. Um, and like the country itself is like ninety-eight percent mountain, so you're on high elevation drinking alcoholic milk in giant bowls. So, like, we were constantly drunk the entire time. Yeah, you've, you've talked about the drinking culture there quite a bit. Oh, it yeah. sounds like you were at a, a giant uh, Central Asian, like, RV park. Yeah, <laughs> that, would, that would be a good metaphor for the Jilo. That sounds incredible. <laughs> really, that's one of the the best stories we've had on here. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, like, what were you gonna say? Oh no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, one of my other favorite stories is just hearing about the vodka. That is a uh, like it's an alcohol related story. That's what, like your fermented milk reminded me of the vodka, like the vodka that comes in through a pipeline. Oh, the smuggled vodka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the smuggled vodka, so, so the Kyrgyz are culturally Muslim, but because they were, uh, originally a colony of the Russian Empire, then eventually a Soviet Republic, they have a lot of Russian cultural influences, one of them being their vodka drinking, um, and they love vodka, like, everyone drinks vodka, even babies drink vodka, um, Interesting. But, but vodka, good vodka is very, very expensive um, for the Kyrgyz to their to the extent of their con- level of consumption. They drink a lot of vodka, and so that's a lot of income. So there's the whole black market industry of smuggled vodka from Russia, but how they smuggle it is through uh, old Soviet oil pipelines. Um, that go through Kazakhstan. <laughs> so they would smuggle the vodka through these oil pipelines and then put them into like empty bottles and sell it in stores. So that these bottles are from like legitimate companies like uh, Ruski Standard, Russian Standard, which is a very common Russian vodka. You, you can even get that in the states. They would put those in those bottles. So I had no idea. And then, like they'd water it down and like do whatever to it. Um, so every time I would buy vodka, I would no, I have no idea if I was getting legitimate vodka, vodka that had no alcohol content, or vodka that was just like had like a 90% alcohol content. But Peace Corps was like one of those experiences where I literally figured out the meaning of drink until you go blind. It's because many times a smuggled vodka would still have like elements of gasoline or oil in it. Right, I was going to ask you about that. It's coming right. through a used oil pipeline. Exactly. So so there are many cases where if you drink enough of the smuggled vodka, you will literally temporarily go blind. Um, Please don't tell me that happened to you. Um, it happened to me once. <laughs> oh, good God. <laughs> at like, uh, one of the, probably like the first like Peace Corps reunion party at my province where we were all just really shit drunk. And Peace Corps volunteers drink a lot. And um, by the time I got to the smuggled vodka, I was already really drunk. And the vodka tasted horrible, but at that point, I didn't really care. And um, I lost my sight for, like, a couple hours. That's 
Um, and like I was panicking, and I had, like one of the other volunteers were like was calling Peace Corps Medical, and we were on we were talking to the doctor, and the Peace Corps doctor, who was Kyrgyz, was just like, "Were you drinking vodka?" And I was like, "Yes." He's like, "Don't worry, go to sleep. It'll, <laughs> your vision will come back in a couple hours, probably." He's like, "Don't wake me up for this shit again." Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, and it was like, if you don't, if you're still blind by the next morning, call me again, and I'll get you a car out to Bishkek. And <laughs> you're we'll still blind. You. <laughs> yeah, I'm still blind. <laughs> he was like totally, He was completely not worried about it and totally nonchalant about it. So that probably put you at ease, though, if you heard this guy saying, "Okay, this is pretty." <laughs> well, my common. first. Well, well, yes and no, because like. Also, like I've had very interesting experiences with Peace Corps Medical. They are great overall. They're just absolutely lovely people, um, and very, very well educated, knowledgeable. Um, but there's definitely a process of trust that is established with them. At that point, yeah, my my trust level with them was pretty high, so I was like, I calmed down a bit. But like, um, like there's this one instance. Um, it's like Thanksgiving. I was with some other volunteers. Also really drunk, and I get hit by a car, um, and I had to be carried back into the apartment. What and, in the world? And we call Peace Corps Medical, and so Peace Corps Medical calls, and they're like, "Is anything broken?" I was like, "I don't think so." Um, Do you have a bruise? I was like, "I have a bruise." Can you like walk around? How does that feel? And it's like it hurts, but not like agonizing. They're like, uh, "It's okay. Just put some ice on it." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I understand it to some extent. Like yeah. they're just doing triage, really. But yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Mean, car, it's, still, more it's still, I would still have trouble falling asleep blind. Oh, it was. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh god. Well, I mean, like just hoping that it wears off by morning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was sober and went blind, I would be freaking out more. I was also really drunk at that time, so like the alcohol kind of like put me to sleep. Um, so it wasn't that bad. The alcohol could quiet the little voice in your head that said, "Hey, don't go to sleep because you're fucking blind right now." Pretty much, yeah. Incredible. Um, so you also said that you you worked in in Tanzania. Was that the other place you said you worked in? Yep. Yeah, that was my most recent. Um, All right. So do you want to give us a little background on how you got involved in that? Yeah, um, so I went to Tanzania as part of my, um, we call it a practicum at SIT, Graduate Institute, basically our field work. Um, and so I spent a year in Tanzania working for a French organization called Tattoo Projects that did mostly women empowerment projects and like business planning um, for women support groups. And um, I lived in Moshi, which is like a town in northern Tanzania. And, um, but my sights were like in an hour long radius around Moshi in different Most of my time doing uh, like business planning trainings and helping set up women's support groups. Wow, that's, that's really cool um, to be able to do. Um, so when you were there, um, what was your experience? How was it similar? How was it different than your previous extended living overseas 
experience, and do you feel like your previous experience helped you with Tanzania, or was it just so completely different that you had to kind of acculturate yourself anew? Um, well, the culture was completely different. The language was completely different. Um, Peace Corps definitely helped me. Um, so I didn't have to go through like this long, intense like integration process mm-hmm. and like this reflection process to, to the point. So it was like easier to integrate into Tanzania than it was me first integrating in Kyrgyzstan because by the time I finished Peace Corps, I had pretty much like my my perceptions of problems completely changed. Like in Kyrgyzstan, my first couple months, I like just not being able to shower for a, a month was like a problem, or it kind of drove me in crazy. But then, like in Tanzania, I just didn't care because um, I was kind of like adjusted to that level of living. Um, but there, but. Tanzania had its own like nuances as well. Um, it was a former, originally a German colony, then switched over to English. So um, many Tanzanians spoke some level of English. Um, so my, my my Swahili level didn't advance as well or as fast as my Kyrgyz, because um, most people spoke to me in English. Um, and in some ways, it was more developed than Kyrgyzstan, but in other ways, it wasn't. Um, like, and the culture was sort of different in that in Kyrgyzstan, if I was just stranded out in the middle of nowhere, someone would always be there. Or, like, I just talked to someone, and they're like, I'll give you a ride. And just have dinner with me, tell me about your life. That's how you settle the debt. In Tanzania, it was more of like, if you're stranded out in the middle of nowhere, no one is going to help you because you are um, basically uh, one of those evil, imperialistic, colonial masters. Um, but at the same time, though, they're, they're in the village, they're very friendly and accommodating and very patient. Um, but it was just like things were kind of like different and similar to Kyrgyzstan. Um, like, for instance, in Kyrgyzstan, I could always find public transportation to get where I wanted. In Tanzania, to get to my villages, I would have to hitchhike on top of a dump truck wow. and smuggle myself outside of Moshi to get to the villages, which was completely illegal and dangerous. But um, after a Why while... Why was it illegal? Because of, like, one... You have to have a taxi license. Oh, okay. Um, so it's illegal for the transporter. Yeah, but also safety, because you have like 30 people sit standing on top of a dump truck in like really rugged uh, roads. Yeah. And there's definitely been times where like our dump trucks have almost tipped over or have tipped over. But and, I guess my question was, so it's not, it wasn't illegal for you to move about the country, it was illegal just to ha- your methods of transportation. Right, my methods of transportation were um, pretty scary. And that's probably actually one of the dif- major differences between my organization in Tanzania and the organization in Peace Corps. In Peace Corps, I had kind of like, they didn't handhold me, they left me alone for the most part, 
but they always had my back and they always like helped me out if I needed them. Um, so I always had like this organization that supported me through my experience. And um, Tanzania, I worked for a really small, semi-illegal, well, not, completely illegal organization. <laughs> that, I love how <laughs> semi-illegal never transitions back to legal. It always yeah. transitions to completely yeah. illegal. It, it's semi-illegal. <laughs> it's semi-legal because they paid bribes enough where we didn't get reported. Oh. But it was definitely illegal in that it was it was not registered at all. Right. Um, so anytime a charity so, has yeah, to so, but I didn't have I didn't have the same like kind of um, support as to the extent of Peace Corps because I didn't organization didn't have the resources. I didn't even have a visa. For a year in Tanzania, like I was Goodness. completely illegal. In you were Tanzania. there for a year, right? Yeah, for a year. Okay, so the whole time and, um, you didn't have a visa. The entire time I was there, I had no visa, and I didn't have a, the yellow card for vaccinations. And so, like yellow fever. Uh, Did you when have I first that vaccine? No. So. Oh. Um, but when I first, like when I first got in Tanzania, it was not mandatory for Americans to get yellow fever vaccination mm -hmm. until like a week after I arrived in Tanzania, where they changed a lot and it was mandatory. Um, but at that point, I was like, I didn't really care. And then like later on, um, one of my Polish friends and I like fabricated a oh, fake yeah. uh, yellow card. So how, can you be more specific about that? What was that process like? <laughs> Base, it's very easy, actually. So I wanted to go... I was there for six months already, and I wanted to go to vacation in Kenya. I couldn't cross the border to Kenya without proving I had a ye yellow fever shot. Um, but but I had no... I didn't have a yellow fever shot. I had no idea who gave yellow fever shots or trusted anyone to give me a yellow fever shot. And I had no documentation at all of, like, the vaccines I had because no one told me I had to bring documentation. Um, mm -hmm. So my Polish friend who is a medical student and one of our health volunteers was like, don't worry, we do this all the time in Poland. Um, and she takes me to a copy and print store where she we first make a copy of her certification um, well, we scan her certification, we alter her name, no, no, sorry, um, we print it out, I take, um, like, white ink and, like, like, cover up her name and gender, and then I, with a pen, carefully put in my name and gender, then re-scan it, print it out, and so I had, like, a yellow fever booklet, technically saying I was from Poland, um, <laughs> at, with an American passport. Right, so this isn't going to match your passport at all. Right, so it was maybe like the entire process was, and I had and I, I had like a copy of my passport photo, so I put my photo over her photo. So it just it looked like a really crappy copy. Well, not a really crappy copy, but a, a printed out copy of a like vaccine booklet 
with my name and uh, and photo and gender, but saying I was from Poland. Um, <laughs> so I got to, and it was the entire process. <laughs> you, probably, felt, you felt there was legitimate enough to travel internationally. Right, right. Well, I have been, I've been, I've traveled in these kind of countries before where I felt pretty confident I could talk my way out of the situation if anyone mm. decided to question me. Um, so I get to the Kenyan border, okay. and I'm in, I, I'm in line, I'm in line, and it's like these really big security guards like checking everyone's um, ID and certifications, and especially the yellow fever shot. And I'm like, oh shit, I, I'm gonna get sent back. And remember, <laughs> I have no visa either, um, so. I just have a. I literally just have like a tourist stamp on my passport that had already expired. I, like so, like if I got turned back, I would be deported. And I was like, oh crap, maybe this was not a good idea. I get to the security guard and he looks at me and just tells me to go along. He didn't doesn't ask for any ID. And I was like, what the Ooh. hell is going on? So I pass him. I look around. He's checking every single African while he's just doesn't care at all about the white people or the like the American tourists or whatever. Wow. Um, so the entire the entire process was wasted. And now I, I got really pissed off about it. So on my way back, so after my vacation, I went through the same road, but from the Kenyan side, and I and like the Kenyan guard didn't really care about me because I was American tourist. And so he didn't ask for it, but I was like, no, I spent 30 minutes creating this. I'm going to have at least <laughs> someone look at it. So I, I, I forced him to stand. He looked at it, he looked at my passport, and then he just gave it back to me and just told me to move along. So it was just like, wow. At least you got it looked at, though. Yeah, but someone to see your masterpiece. I had it looked at, yeah, I had it looked at, but I already created, created this like, elaborate backstory of why I have a Polish... Um, copy of it. why I have a printed copy of a Polish um, certification card. So what was your backstory? What were you going to tell them if they asked? That's that's I my went to visit my girlfriend in Poland before I went to Tanzania, and that's but I got my my vaccinations in Poland, and then. I lost my card. I made copies of the actual booklet, but then lost it, and like a thief stole it in um, Moshi. And so they could, so have, they could go make copies of it at a copy right, store. Right, right. <laughs> that was my excuse of why I had a copy of a Polish certification booklet. It would have worked, maybe. I was confident. I mean, it definitely worked because they just did not care about Americans. They just assumed we all had yellow fever vaccinations. Yeah, I've run into that kind of situation before. Like the whole, like, American privilege kind of thing. Yeah, right. In other countries, yeah. it's it's very apparent in Tanzania. It's you don't get. It's not the same in Kyrgyzstan. Like in Kyrgyzstan, because they grew up among Russians, they automatically assume you're a spy. Um. Or like this corrupt evil capitalist about to like suck their souls, and yet they'll still give you rides anywhere you need. Right, <laughs> but but in Tanzania, they will give you rides, but that's out of more of like this cultural fear of 
white people than out of just being kind. Huh. Or they they might some we call them uh they call them flycatchers, which are literally uh, young men out to scam Western tourists. Um, yeah. So they'll offer a service, but then like charge you crazy amounts of money, or they'll pester you. They'll follow you around and pester you to the point where you say yes. Um, oh man, I've been had so many times. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to once or twice where like I'm like I know I'm paying too much or I know this is gonna end awkwardly. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and there's like there's two systems in Tanzanian culture. There's the uh, the local system and then there's what they call the Muzungu uh, system. Muzungu meaning like Westerner, um, which in the Muzungu system is far more expensive than the local system. Um, so like say Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, for locals it costs them maybe $30 to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. But for a Westerner, for a Muzungu, it costs around $5,000. Mm. That, what a markup. Yeah. Good Lord. I definitely saw that in Indonesia a little bit, <clears throat> but like, I think it's also like I, when I think about like uh, Kyrgyzstan compared to Tanzania, one of them has a significant larger tourist population, right? Like Tanzania. Right. Tanzania has a very well developed tourist industry. Yeah. Um, and they have a tourist system where Kyrgyzstan is doesn't really have a tourist industry. People go there to visit. It's mostly Russians, and um, so thus, like foreigners, remain like kind of like curiosity rather than like you know dollar signs in a sense. Like a target, right? Which right. now, I mean, not, yeah, that's not, not, I'm not saying anything negative about Tanzanians because there's every store in America is also looking at everyone that comes in the door as dollar signs, but right yeah. now, yeah, like in Kyrgyzstan in my village, I was the first American they have ever seen. Um, wow, and ever interacted with in um, Tanzania in the cities and the towns I was a common sight and no one really cared right. I, st I still get stared at and stuff but but it's more like in the village where you get the, the kind of experience of like who like what is this person like so in Tanzania they have this folklore where people with white skin are demons, and it's it's within like their folk mythos. Um, it's used to dehumanize albinos, but also applies to Europeans and Caucasians. And that's um, been in the news a lot lately too. In in Mozambique, yeah. I think it was really a big problem. Yeah, recently. yeah, it's a huge problem in a lot of Tanzania, where witch doctors will send their followers out to hunt down albinos, and basically chop them up for their body parts and like an eyeball from an albino would sell on the black market for like three thousand dollars good lord yeah and it gives you an erection for nine months yep yeah well, yeah you it's should all call over. your doctor if it it's lasts like, longer than nine months yeah it's like they're it's like the the witch doctor version of viagra but be, but because they have but it's okay in the villages because wait what's okay people, to kill your albinos well, because in the villages where 
the old mysticism and the old folklore are still really dominant. Um, albinos are demons. Um, so, like, when I first entered some of the villages, I mean, I'm not cocked. I'm only half white, but I was white enough where the children would be completely freaked out by me because they thought uh, I was Cliff, a demon. we'd be doomed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't chop you up to bits because they know you're not albino and you're Westerners. Yeah. I don't know. I look pretty close to it. I miss you. That's amazing. And yeah. it's so funny that you brought up the the idea of that you would go to some of these villages and you were the first American person they'd ever seen. Because my um, my father-in-law in Argentina, he's from a really, really, really small town. Probably a couple hundred people in the town. And the, the name of the town is, is Maipu. And <laughs> my family, every time I tell them that we're going to go to Maipu, they think that that is the most hilarious thing in the world. Um, so they always t- he always tells me the story that when he was in high school back in like the, the late 70s, early 80s, they had one American guy, he was a foreign exchange student, come and live in their town. And everybody in the town knows this guy's name. His name was Steve. <laughs> and everybody in the town, if they find out that you're American, they will ask you if you know or are related to Steve. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. It's just this total small town mindset. And, you know, people in the U.S. are guilty of that, too. If, you, if you're from another country and you go to freaking upstate New York, nobody's going to have any idea, you know, and they're going to generalize. Right. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, like in Kyrgyzstan, no one uh, could pronounce Jesse, um, because the the J-E, how we pronounce J-E doesn't tr- pronounce well in Kyrgyz. They don't have the exact sound. Um, and they definitely don't have, they, they definitely have a hard time with the S-E, the S-E. So they compromised. They just started calling me Jeff. Like, um, Jeff. <laughs> right. So, like, my host father could not pronounce Jesse. And he refused to believe that, like, American men had different names outside of Jesse or outside of Jeff or Jack. So the entire time, so like my first time meeting Why him was, I would, I would introduce myself, hi, my name is Jesse, and he looked at me, shook my hands like, welcome to the family, Jeff. And then he would go around to all the other Kyrgyz families, <laughs> and he would say, I would like to introduce you to my new son, Jeff. And then when I was introduced to Village, he would introduce me to Village leaders as my name being Jeff. So all of Kyrgyzstan, at least in my province, had no idea what my real name was, and for so for 27 months, I would go by Jeff. <laughs> so when you introduced yourself anew to people, did you like capitulate and just call yourself Jeff at any point, or did you keep pushing and trying to get Jesse across? Um, I got there the first month, I kind of gave up. Um, <laughs> so for yeah, so yeah, for like two and a half years, over two and a half years, I was just called Jeff. Um, now, like my counterpart and uh, some of like the Kyrgyz I worked r- really closely with, they knew my real name. Um, but the rest of the province only knew me as Jeff, hmm. which confused the hell of Peace Corps when they like started asking 
So, like, yeah, when I disappeared in the Gilos for, like, <laughs> the entire summer, it they, started calling, they started calling the village asking for Jesse, and no one knew who the hell Jesse was. They only knew Jeff. So they only, they 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 only tell... Yeah, so for, like... Yeah they, yeah, they thought I went AWOL until finally they were able to find, like, a second cousin of my host family who knew where I was and who knew my real name. Um, and then they told Peace Corps where I was. How long would it go until Peace Corps told, like, your family that they didn't know where you were? Like, <laughs> like I wonder how many man hours are invested in just the search for Jesse. It's going to be I a Peace Corps volunteer knocking at the door. I have no idea. Um... Well, I would say, like, my first month, they confused me with another volunteer actually called Jeff, which was ironic. <laughs> um, but the real Jeff was in, like, the other side of the country. And he was at a, um, he was at a summer camp for his first month after training. And in my village, I didn't have a phone signal. So they, Peace Corps constantly tried to call me, thinking I was Jeff, and... Because Jeff, the real Jeff, forgot to tell his host family he was going to a summer camp, so his host family had no idea where he was. Um, but they knew, <laughs> but they thought Jeff was me, so they would constantly try to call me, and I wouldn't answer the phone because I had no phone signal, and so they were about to send like embassy security out to figure out where I was. Um, and they eventually figure out the mistake, but it was still pretty funny. They should have known. They should have. They need to talk about the gylos. Yeah, you got to build that into an orientation or something <laughs> like that for future people. You know? Well, not many, not many volunteers actually. So there's different levels of isolation, different tiers. Tier zero, you would be like in the capital city. Um, tier one, you'd be in like the province capital. Tier two, you would be in a, like, a small, or you'd be in, like, a, what they would call a, a county, they call them Ryan centers, which is basically the, a county city or village. And then tier four would be, like, a remote village. I was in the tier six village. What um, in the world? So most, Wait, you were in tier six? Yeah. I was like way down the line. I was super iced. Like I was, there was only one other volunteer in our entire program that was more isolated than I was. Um, but so yeah, most. So I would I think most volunteers didn't really know about the Gylos simply because they never really had the opportunity because they're in more slightly more developed areas, whereas like. Volunteers on my tier were definitely like completely integrated within like hardcore Kyrgyz culture. Now, I have a friend who also did the Peace Corps. Um, he's got some great stories. Like we could have him on at some point. But his recommendation to anyone applying to the Peace Corps was to uh, request to be as far from the capital as possible, so that the Peace Corps <laughs> like main office couldn't bother you. Would you agree with that? Right. Like if I would agree with that. For any so, applicants listening to this, potentially? Yeah, I mean, my advice to applicants would be don't be picky, be really flexible, and go as isolated as you can get if you want the real Peace Corps experience. 
Um, now, like I, now, in my program, we kind of figure out how they send volunteers out to these isolation levels. Like the the people they really wanted to promote back stateside, like the really charming volunteers, they would get the really posh assignments. So they would stay in the capital city or nearby the capital city. So it's easier oh. for Peace Corps staff to like go out there and take photos of them and share their story. Uh, the troublemakers and the drunks would be sent to the, one of the neighboring provinces. Um, that was pretty developed, and that Peace Corps can get to pretty quickly. Um, like the like the the tough volunteers who they thought had like a really high stress threshold would be sent out to a pretty remote province, um, but still close enough where they interacted with Peace Corps um, regularly. And the really experienced volunteers or like the people who just asked a bunch of questions during training or annoyed the hell out of the trainers, they would get sent to the farthest most isolated areas of the country <laughs> where you would probably maybe interact with Peace Corps once or twice a year. And I got sent to <laughs> definitely one of the farthest reaches areas of my program. So yeah, how do you account for that? Did you like piss them off during the, the orientation process? Or I didn't, I didn't piss anyone off. I definitely... Um, I would say, like, well, when I, in training, I was, like, I was a little cocky in that I thought I could just be a badass, um, and my program manager definitely thought I was super weird, <laughs> um, but also I was, like, so I was stuck in, uh, Talas province, which was known as the bro so, like, a province in Kyrgyz is called an Oblast. So, Talas was, had a reputation of being called the Broblast because <laughs> every female they, every female volunteer they sent out there quit. So, there's never been, like, a, a long-term female volunteer. It's only been, like, ma male volunteers because, like, in training we're taught, like, the Kyrgyz are super nice, very indirect, very polite, but for whatever reason, opposite of mainstream Kyrgyz culture, in that they're, like, really aggressive, touchy, and extremely blunt, which was true. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, a lot of us, like, that province always had the highest number of dropouts. Like, people just quit. Um, and... I chose that province because I was like, man, that sounds like a hardcore province. I'm going to go there. And my oh, so program manager it. thought I was weird as hell. I, I picked it, but at the same time, my program manager was like, because she asked you, like my program manager asked me which province I would like to go to. I said to Los, and she was like, oh, great. I was planning on sending you there anyways. Ugh. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> We're on the same page. Yeah. But yeah, but like literally everyone who ended up in Talas were definitely the ones who either the program managers thought were kind of weird or definitely irritating or definitely too, so they've had a lot of a lot of them also had a lot of experience internationally and so they always constantly questioned Peace Corps protocols and regulations and how the, and their methodology. Um, so troublemakers. So 
Tolosa was the province of troublemakers. So for any new applicants who really want to be really isolated, ask lots of questions during training, and you're almost guaranteed to be to, sent uh, to the middle of nowhere. I had no idea that these things could be so fickle. Oh, like program managers are the most fickle people I've ever met. Great people, but if but they're they definitely pick favorites. Right. Don't look at them the wrong way, or you could be sent to to herd sheep. Right. Unless that's something you want to do, then right, totally right. do that. Yeah. By all means, piss them off. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, this has been, believe it or not, we've been going on about, I think, an hour and 15 minutes at this point. Oh, uh, really? So yeah. this has been one of our longest, easily most entertaining interview that we've done. Um, I mean, no offense uh, to any been, of our previous guests, but... Uh, it's been tons of fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I really appreciate having you on. Cliff, you were, and, and we <laughs> so, did a lot of fun, believe it or not. No, but this was a lot more enjoyable. No, your stories are really incredible, and we really appreciate you talking about your Peace Corps experience because I know that there are plenty of people um, who are looking into that as a, as a potential line of work. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Um, feel free to come back anytime you want because I'm sure you oh, have a you. million more stories. Yeah, there's oh, yeah, definitely some sure. others. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been yeah. tons of fun. And I, I definitely have some thoughts of like other people lined up that were. I, I know a bunch of Peace Corps people at this point, and every Peace Corps person has great stories. Like, just sitting around a dinner table listening to like Jesse and Rebecca, an another friend of ours, talk is always just so amazing. That's so really I, cool. I appreciate like you coming on, and I'll probably see you downstairs in like ten minutes. Yeah, you probably. Lucky <laughs> <dogs>. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for everyone that's listened. And All right. Thanks for everybody who made it this far. Yeah. <laughs> All right.